All right, if you haven't already, open your Bible or navigate on your device to John 14 so you can follow along. I'm a big believer that as you read along, the Lord will actually show you things that are in the text, and um, that's always an excitement. John 14, verses 1 through 14. The topic, Jesus reveals he is returning to heaven to prepare houses for his saints. The title of the message, Houses of the Holy. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we've come together this morning, this unique gathering of saints and perhaps some folks that are seeking you. Maybe they don't even know they're seeking you, Lord. They, they might not be aware that they're not saved. They might not know about being born again and having the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them and putting them into the body of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in their lives. The rest of us, Lord, we come in with needs and desires and joys and sorrows and just a, a full mix of the uh, emotions, Lord, of human beings and situations. Speak to them each, Lord, in your own precious way. We ask this in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Geneticists are trying to 23andMe Jesus. Dr. George Busby is a evolutionary geneticist at the University of Oxford. In a 2017 interview, he said, an archaeologist rather discovered what he believes are the bones of one of the most famous of all saints, John the Baptist. I was interested in what DNA analysis could tell us about those bones. Busby is interested because he is searching ultimately for the DNA of Jesus. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, meaning they would share DNA. Another team is working to extract DNA from the James Ossuary, a first century box which may have held the bones of Jesus' brother. Researchers also found DNA on the Shroud of Turin. Now these secular scientists, I'm sure they're trying to find something that would uh, ultimately discredit uh, Christianity. Uh, the only thing unusual they might find is that Jesus has lion DNA. He is, after all, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so he possibly will have some of that. Believers are the spiritual children of God. The apostle John told us in chapter 1, but as many as received him, them he gave the right to become children of God. In the previous chapter, Jesus addressed his disciples as little children. When you are born of God, you become a child of God in the family of God. Jesus was like God the Father, and you will be like God the Son. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, like the Father, like the Son. And number two, like the Son, like his saints. Let's take a look at Father and Son in verses 1 through 11. Portrayals of God in the movies are all over the map and usually overstep. Actors who have portrayed God include Morgan Freeman, Val Kilmer, Martin Sheen, Rob Zombie, Whoopi Goldberg, Seth MacFarlane, George Burns, Alanis Morissette, Richard Pryor, LL Cool J, Tom Sizemore, and Jacob Cohen. Jacob Cohen is the birth name of Rodney Dangerfield. In an interview, when asked about his parents, he replied, My family moved around a lot, but I always managed to find them. He doubted an avowed atheist, sadly, and that's not a joke. Too bad Hollywood can't get it right. 
Jesus repeatedly said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you uh, know him and have seen him. He who has seen me has seen the father. It was the night before Christ was crucified and all around that table, the disciples were understandably troubled. Jesus had just announced that one of them would betray him. He told Peter that he would deny him. He was talking about dying. Everything they had been working for in the last three plus years seemed like it was coming to a violent end. And so verse one, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Are you ever troubled? Let not puts us on notice that we can overcome a troubled heart. The great physician prescribes the treatment. J.C. Ryle explains, saying, even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a valley of tears. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely, this is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of his disciples. The 11 were believers, but a believer does not know what he believes. When you believe in Jesus, God credits your account with righteousness. He gives you his righteousness from the cross while he takes upon himself your filthy garments of sin. But obviously, you know very little about things like Bible doctrine. And so you get saved knowing who you believe, but not what you believe. That knowledge comes as you walk with Jesus, and especially as you read the Bible. When Jesus told them to believe also in him, he was letting them know that what he was about to tell them was stuff no one yet knew about. Nevertheless, they could believe it because he and the Father are one. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. For the life of me, I don't know why, but it has become popular among Bible commentators, both live and in print, to downplay anything extravagant about the word mansion. They waste ink and breath arguing that the word should be translated dwelling place. My dorm at UC Riverside was a dwelling place. As far as dorms go, it wasn't bad, but uh, it, I, I hope it's not in heaven. A tent is a dwelling place. Under a bridge can be your dwelling place. I mean, wherever you are can be your dwelling place, let's face it. I'm expecting a mansion. Look around at creation. It's magnificent, declaring the glory of God. Even in its current fallenness, you know that God does nothing on the cheap. Everything is first cabin, first class. And when you think about it, as I've said many times, creation is only a backdrop, it's a stage for God to uh, receive human beings into fellowship and redeem and restore us. And then there'll be a new creation that is our backdrop. And so if I look at Yosemite, for example, and think, wow, there's something going on there, some real creativity, man, I expect I expect Yosemite in my backyard. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to look out my dorm window that's this big and say, hey, uh, it looks like a rain. I mean, it, it, you know, heaven is a wonderful place. And so I, I don't know. I guess I, I don't mind saying that I'm special to the Lord. Do you? You are. You're, he loves you. He died for you. 
He, he wants to spend way more time with you than you and I want to spend with him. Uh, you know, and I, I have to believe he's making me the most custom home. It's one of those, oh, you know, the bus isn't going to move. You know, there's no bus in front of your mansion. You know, where, oh, wow, that's a makeover. You ever watch some of those makeover shows? Some people are not too excited about the makeover. I was hoping you'd leave this, you know, it's like this ancient thing and stuff, and they've got some spa there. But anyway, so mansions, it's going to be, it's going to be fabulous. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, or since I do, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Follow the simple movements of Jesus in this verse. He left the earth to return to his Father's house, which is in heaven. He will come again from heaven to receive his followers, and he brings his followers to where he is, to his Father's house in heaven. Jesus is away preparing our mansions in heaven, and he will return to take us home. The coming Jesus promised is a pre-tribulation resurrection and rapture of the church. It cannot be at the second coming, at the end of the great tribulation, because Jesus comes with his saints then, who are already in heaven, not for his saints as he does here. This cannot be the second coming at the end of the great tribulation because Jesus comes and takes his followers to heaven, not to Jerusalem, to establish a kingdom and to reign on earth. This is a new revelation about a coming of Jesus that no one knew anything about until New Testament times. Arno Gabeline writes, The Lord gives a new and unique revelation. He speaks of something which no prophet had promised or even could promise. Where is it written that the Messiah would come and instead of gathering his saints into an earthly Jerusalem, take them to the Father's house, to the very place where he is? It is something new. And let it be noticed in promising to come again, he addresses the 11 disciples and tells them, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. He speaks then of a coming which is not for the deliverance of the Jewish remnant, not of a coming to establish his kingdom over the earth, but a coming to judge the nations, uh, or a coming to judge the nations, but rather a coming which concerns only his own. And so we are on solid ground with the rapture. You know, a lot of people against the rapture all of a sudden. A lot of Christians don't want to talk to you about the rapture and they ridicule you because you believe in the rapture. The rapture's not in the Bible. Jesus never talked about the rapture. You realize people say things and just because they say them, they're not true. Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? The, if I tell you the rapture's not, oh, I guess it's not. Well, sure it is. One of the big arguments about the rapture of the church is that the early church never talked about it. And, and, well, that's not true. You do a search. In five minutes, you can find all kinds of information on early church fathers who uh, indicated that they believed in the pre-tribulation rapture. And so this verse, there's no other way of looking at it. It's the simplest verse imaginable. Jesus went to heaven. He's coming back for you. He's going to take you to heaven. When is that going to happen? Not at his second coming when he establishes his kingdom on earth. He comes with you. You, you've already accustomed to your horse that you're riding. I mean, you've spent some time getting ready to know your horse, and, and you come back on horses, a completely different coming. The Bee Gees asked, how can you mend a broken heart? I don't remember how they answered it. I hated the Bee Gees. But anyway, when he needed... <laughs> I knew all the Bee Gees songs, though, because my brother, I've told you before, my oldest brother was sort of a teen idol around Southern California. He really was. He did records and stuff. You can look him up on YouTube. Tony Penn, P-E-N-N. -N, hear some of his songs. And um, 
he had me that back that, that was back in the day when you, you know you didn't have the internet obviously and so i would have to listen to these records he would bring home and write down all the lyrics so that he could cover these songs with his band and stuff you know and so the bgs you know if you were a band in those days you had to cover bg songs and it was just rough you know how can you mend a broken heart i mean that kind of thing it was just the acapella drove me or the uh, whatever it's called uh, so when Jesus, <laughs> when Jesus needed to comfort his disciples more than ever, he spoke to them of coming together and gather, or of coming to gather them rather to heaven. The Apostle Paul did the same thing when the believers in Thessalonica were troubled about the death of some of their uh, fellow believers. He comforted them by describing the imminent pre-trib resurrection and rapture of the church. After he explained the resurrection and rapture, he said, comfort one another with these words. And so the Lord and the Apostle Paul find it comforting to tell people who are troubled that heaven is in their future and that the Lord may come for them at any moment. And what we think of as a doctrine uh, or the eschatology or whatever you want to say, the Lord said, this is the most comforting thing you can say to a person. You ever wonder, what am I going to say? This is my friend. They just found out they're dying. They don't know how long they have to live. What should I say? Well, if they're not a Christian, you should say that they should meet Jesus Christ. If they are a Christian, you can remind them that they're going to heaven and that when they're absent from their body, they'll be present with the Lord. If you have nothing else to say, read the last two chapters of the Revelation out loud to them, talking about heaven and our home there and such. And so Paul said, hey, I'm going to comfort you the best way I know how. You're going to go to heaven when you die. And, and you're going to be reunited with this loved one. Uh, and, and what could be more exciting than that? Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the Christian is a man who can be certain about the ultimate, even when he is most uncertain about the immediate. And so that's an amazing thing about being a Christian. We are sure about our future. Maybe not the details of our future on earth, but our ultimate future, which is the one that counts. We always have a certainty. You get sick, you get a disease, you contract cancer, whatever it is, you are certain if you're a Christian, you're going to go to heaven. None of that affects whether you're going to heaven or not, except it makes you want heaven all the more. And so um, you can't lose. And so use that to comfort folks. If you're not comforting troubled hearts that way, you're not doing it the way Jesus and Paul did. Verse 4, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? John the Baptist preached that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he taught kingdom principles and parables for living in the kingdom. Four days earlier, on what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was hailed as the king. The king was going to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. So this had progressed to this point, and then Jesus says, now I'm leaving. And so Thomas says, where could you possibly be going? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I once thought that being an Italian Catholic was a lock on getting into heaven. Where is the Vatican? In Rome, Italy. And so, uh, no, I was taught that. 
I was taught that Irish Catholics have to go to purgatory. But anyway. <laughs> Jews thought that they were automatically citizens of the kingdom of God because they were ethnic Jews. But Jesus said, no, there's a way, and it's exclusive, that a person gets into the kingdom, and it's me. I am the way. And so Judaism, as much as it was given by God to reveal his holiness and the grace of God, was not the way. You couldn't keep the Ten Commandments or all the rules and laws and rites and rituals and get into heaven. Jesus is the exclusive way, and by Jesus we mean believing in Jesus. Certainly no other man-made religion or philosophy could be the way. If, if Judaism, which God gave to mankind through Moses, isn't the way, then Islam can't be the way, Buddhism can't be the way, Taoism can't be the way, Confucianism can't be the way, Scientology is certainly not the way. Ooh, man, that's a weird one. <laughs> Believing in Jesus is the exclusive way. Why would God send his son to earth to die on the cross if people could get into heaven some other way? Gene, you can go to heaven by believing my son died for you and rose from the dead after you know, being treated cruelly and all this kind of stuff. Or you can meditate and go from level to level and reincarnation to reincarnation. It's silly, God, and God's not stupid. Jesus is the truth and the life. Randy Alcorn writes, Jesus didn't say he would show truth or teach truth or model truth. He is truth. And so if you look at Jesus, everything that's contained in the word of God and the plan of God and the people of God, it's, it, it, it culminates in Jesus Christ. He is the truth of our universe, of God's love for, for mankind. And his resurrection from the dead established that he has the authority to grant eternal life. He alone has life within himself to give. In the 1980s, we used to gesture to heaven and say, one way, remember that? And you'd have one-way t-shirts and stuff like that. It was an important symbol of the revival known as the Jesus Movement. The first century church was called the way by others because they would talk about Jesus as the exclusive way. Not sure if they use the one way. I can see Peter on the day of Pentecost, though. You know, that'd be kind of cool, but not sure. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. They knew Jesus in a saving way, as I mentioned earlier. Nevertheless, they were deficient in their knowledge of God the Father, largely because he must be spiritually discerned, which requires a person to have the help of God the Holy Spirit. They could only understand so much without being born again and receiving God the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, the teaching of the New Testament is that God and spiritual things can be known finally only by a direct work of God within the soul. The true understanding of God must be by the personal spiritual awareness. The Holy Spirit is indispensable. Now, these guys were saved in the Old Testament sense of the word. They, if they died, they went to Hades awaiting uh, Jesus' coming. But they weren't born again. They didn't have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them. And so what some people might read as a rebuke, I, I've been with you such a long time and you guys can't figure this out. No, they couldn't figure it out because they didn't have the Holy Spirit to figure it out. And, and, and so they were kind of, they were in a spiritual darkness. Jesus had just revealed to them, for example, the rapture of the church. What are you talking about? 
I mean, these guys have been through the Old Testament over and over again. They probably had most of it memorized, as most Jews did. And, and Jesus is giving them all these new information that they can't really fathom because they don't yet have the Spirit. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. It was not uncommon in the Old Testament times for a Jew to see a vision of God. Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they are all in that club. They saw various visions of God. Philip wanted something like that. I believe that's what he's asking for. But what he wanted was less than what he already had. And, and this is an interesting point. This sometimes applies to our lives as well. Jesus was right there, sitting at the head of the table. He was present with Philip. He could be touched and heard. Uh, they could converse with one another. Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel would be jealous because they had Jesus physically who was exactly like the father if the father was a human being. And so they were way beyond visions. Many believers are turning to so-called ancient practices of the early church. Sometimes in your reading, it's called the primitive church. Scholars have to do those things, I guess, to be scholars. You know, so that you can say primitive, what do they mean by that? I don't like the word primitive. I think of cavemen. You know, and so, I'm, I mean, I think of two guys going, ooh, ooh, ooh. That uh, was John 3.16 in Caveman, but uh, who knows? Anyway, the primitive early church. One article I read said, large segments of evangelicalism are moving towards the traditional. This is evidenced by the fact that younger evangelicals are showing more interest in Christian ordinances, such as communion and baptism, and in worshiping according to the liturgy. For them, tradition is vibrant. I'm sorry, but I cannot help but see tradition like this as a step backward, putting distance between you and the Lord, and just changing your mind about how to approach the Lord. When Pam and I got married down at Waverly Chapel in Santa Ana, um, you had to, where the groom and the pastor waited, you had to go out and go around and come in the back door of the chapel. And um, so I was over there with Reverend Ball. Uh, I wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so that, that aside, uh, the wedding was legal, however. But anyway, uh, so we start over there. He's wearing, a, he's wearing a suit. I'm wearing the white tuxedo that everybody wore in the late 70s and some kind of spats. And, you know, I'd look ridiculous. But, uh, you know, so I'm following him. And about, you know, halfway over there, he, he's got something under his arm. Uh, and he, he takes it out, and it's, a, it's, it's like a plastic bag, and he just, this, he got, I'm, I know I made this up, but it seems so dramatic. He reaches in and throws the bag, you know, and stuff, and it's blowing away in the wind and making all this noise. And then I look at him, and he goes like this, and this robe comes out. It's all folded up in this robe, you know, and stuff. And then he, he, he takes the robe and he puts it on. You ever watch the West Wing and see Martin Sheen put on his jacket? He throws the robe around him and pulls it over his head and puts it on. And it's like he transformed into another person. And I thought, what am I doing? What, I thought I was getting married, not going to judgment. Or so, I mean, it was incredible. It scared me to death. Uh, I, I was really, I, I contemplated leaving. You know, and so that's the kind of thing tradition does to me. You know, and so if I come out here some Sunday with a robe on, well, then I have to match it. Well, I can't do any of this fun stuff. If I, I've got a robe on, I mean, it's like, okay, you know, we'll be done in 10 minutes. Um, of course, maybe you'd like that, but, uh, you know, it's just weird. I mean, all this stuff is weird. 
And, and so the big thing now, too, I know I'm uh, taking too long, but you don't care. Um, I feel you pouring, pulling it out of me. Uh, the big thing now is communion. Everybody's got their own new thing about communion and when it should be taken, how often it should be taken. Uh, a lot of young people are saying you should, you should share in, in the Lord's Supper every time the church gets together. Uh, and that, that there's all kinds of meaning and stuff in the Lord's Supper that we're missing. And some of them are actually moving into a more mystical understanding than memory understanding and all. And, and, of course, people say, well, we should have, you know, the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning. And I always say, supper in the morning? Because, see, they want to they really do the Lord's Supper the way the Lord did it. And they want all the tradition and all that, but they're not going to sit around a, a, a table on, on pillows. Oh, that's okay. We don't need to do that. We're not even going to have it at night. Well, we don't need to do that. Whatever we think communion is, we're doing that as this great tradition of the primitive church to feel more spiritual. And, um, you know, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I can't get into it. It's a step backward. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the father? This is like a father-like son thing, you know? Gino and I were on a missions trip one time. Uh, we were over in Honduras, I think, with the high school. And we were at this one venue. Somebody took a picture of this, a video. And so we were both sitting on the stage. The stage just came flat. And we had the same kind of clothes on because, you know, it was a uniform thing. And so we're sitting next to each other and head down looking at our Bibles. And um, we had, both of us had our uh, right leg right ankle on our left uh, knee, and we're sitting there, and if you've ever seen me sit like that, or Gene, you know we're shaking our foot like crazy all the time. And we were absolutely in sync, you know, just both at the same time and stuff. And it was an eerie, creepy DNA moment in my life, you know. So, and of course, I looked like I was in high school, and so, because uh, I'm so incredibly handsome, I just, you know, had... <laughs> genetics, it'll get to me. Verse nine. We already read. Uh, verse 10. Well, I just was reminding you in case you lost your place. So now that I'm on all these tangents this morning, there's about 50% Bible study here, I think. But do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? I'm in, remember that song? Who remembers that song? I'm in my Father. <laughs> the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. There's an intimacy, a unity, an equality that could be witnessed with the eyes of faith. They could, in a sense, see the Father in Jesus because they were the same. Jesus spoke words and he did works, but never on his own. He set aside the independent use of his deity, and as a man he obeyed God. A, di a disciple is someone who sets aside their independence to obey God. That's a kind of a working definition. Oh, you're a disciple? That means you are dependent on the Lord. You have no independence to do what you want to do because he has a plan for your life and the interactions of your life. And that's a joyous thing uh, because uh, I've planned. Have you ever planned something that didn't work out? I mean, just bombed, just tanked. You definitely don't want to plan your life. <laughs> you know, it's way worse than that party that didn't work out. A large part of Jesus' encouragement to his disciples is going to be that he would send them out to serve. We take over where Jesus left off. If we want to be servants like him, 
we will set aside our independence. Like son, like servants, April 30th, 1975, 11 Marines remained. They climbed to the roof of the embassy, locking the doors to each floor behind them with no means to call for help. Four hours later, many of the men assumed they would either be killed by the communist troops or by the frenzied crowds that by then had broken through the embassy's gates and were breaking their way through each locked door between the floor and the roof. But then, off in the distance, they spotted the last helicopter out of Saigon, Vietnam. Christians live in a spiritual war zone as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. He's coming for us to take us home. We don't cower on a rooftop of our embassy, however, afraid we'll miss the last chopper. We're in the streets. We're among those who are the Lord's enemies, who are taken captive by Satan to do his will. And there is room on our helicopter for whosoever of them believes. I suppose a better metaphor would be a transporter. The dead in Christ of the church age and all living believers will be instantly changed and transported to heaven. Jesus was leaving. Until his return, we are tasked with continuing the work. There's a lot of work in these next three verses. Verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. If we do the works Jesus did, and there are a lot more of us throughout the church age, then we're going to do greater works numerically and geographically. And so certainly that's what it means, at least part of what that means. However, it usually foments an argument because the first thing people think of is miracles. I did works, you're going to do more of them. And we think, well, the works Jesus did were miracles, even though he did a lot of other things, but he sure did a lot of miracles, and so shouldn't we be doing tons of miracles? Well, as I've been pointing out in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself said the miracles are proof he was Messiah. The majority of Jews who witnessed his miracles did not believe. You might even say miracles are not an efficient strategy. They're not an efficient, effective strategy because... It's 50-50, 70-30 that people are going to actually believe them. In fact, some people get more irate as a result of them. Grant Osborne writes and he says, we must ask what greater miracle than the raising of Lazarus might be. The answer is that the greatest miracle is not new physical life, such as Lazarus received, but new spiritual life, the bestowal of eternal life on the unsaved. While Jesus made forgiveness for sins and salvation possible by his sacrificial death on the cross and by sending the Spirit to enter the new believer upon conversion, we are allowed to participate in God's mission to save the lost. So the greater works are both life in the new age of the Spirit and the resultant mission to the unsaved empowered by the Spirit. As a footnote, like the Ramones saying, I believe in miracles. We believe in miracles here. But more often than not, they don't happen. It isn't because we're failing, but on account of the biblical fact that in the church age, our suffering and weakness and foolishness reveal the glory of God more than miracles do. And so um, God could use you to do a miracle. People are doing miracles still all over the world through the centuries. Not a, you know, obviously not as many as Jesus was doing every day, uh, but they do. But Generally speaking, uh, they're not as effective as the, the Lord in you making you a new creature in Christ and people witnessing that. There's that. If, uh, uh, it's really fun 
if you got saved later in life, uh, I mean, it's not an advantage or a disadvantage. I mean, I wish I had been saved as a child, but I, I wasn't. Well, I was a Catholic, and so I would have went to Catholic heaven, uh, which is hell. But anyway, uh, so, uh, you know, when I got saved, uh, people could immediately tell the difference. I couldn't, but people could. And same with many of you, you know, with Pam, with all the people I knew that got saved. People would actually say, wow, what happened? You look different. I don't know, it's just a spiritual thing. And there's that window of time uh, with individuals that you're around where it's like, wow, what happened to you? And stuff, and it's, it's a miracle. I have eternal life. Uh, it's not an external miracle. I didn't raise anybody from the dead. I'm a new creature. How's that? And so that's what Jesus is talking about. Then he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Whatever? Anything? Really? Well, that's not my experience. Is that your experience? Has the Lord given you whatever, anything that you've asked for? The answer to the anything, whatever, is demonstrated for us in an episode that would occur a little later that night. Remember, like son, like saints, right? And so we want to be like Jesus. When the authorities arrested the Lord, Peter drew his sword to defend him. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword up will perish by the sword. Don't you think that I cannot pray my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And how could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? 60,000 warrior angels were at Jesus' disposal. One angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep. 60,000 angels at DEFCON 1. And Jesus said, I could ask for that right now. I could ask for that anything, that whatever. And this would be all over. Just the carnage of it would be amazing to watch. It would be all done. But what about the scriptures? What about salvation? What about saving people? What, What about dying and rising from the dead? What about the mission? And so the Lord said, yeah, I I could ask for anything. And specifically, I could ask for this and get it, but I'm not going to because that's not what's on the table. We need to pick up our cross and the things we ask for. You know, normally people just say, well, whatever's in the will of God. And that's true. You know, we can, anything that's in the will of God, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's not. It's servanthood. It's like, hey, Gene, you have this health problem. You have Parkinson's disease. Own it. It's yours. Lord, take it away. No, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. All right. Well, then there must be something on the table, right? There must, be, there must be a reason for it. I don't need to find the reason. I'm not looking for the reason. I'm not starting the Gene Pensiero Parkinson's Association of Hanford. You know, there's not going to be a special offering or anything like that, you know. But do you understand what I mean? There's, you know, Jesus knew what was on the table. It was the salvation of, of millions and billions of people. And he said, so I'm, I'm going to go through with this. I'm going to see how this plays out, just like we, we, we said. And so that's what happens in your life. So anything you want, God gives you, but it's what he knows you need. And so not a cop-out, it's a servanthood. Thank you for your service has become a popular response when we see first responders or the military. I don't want to hijack the custom, but we could say to any Christian God is using, thank you for your service. Putting your life on the line, as it were, in some cases, to share about Jesus Christ.
Our service doesn't end at the reward seat. Alexander McLaren writes, the joys of heaven are not the joys of passive contemplation or dreamy remembrance of perfect repose, but they are described thus, they rest not day or night, his servants serve him and see his face. Like the Father, like the Son, like the Son, like his saints, it's in our spiritual DNA.